From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Today, growing up with a mother, Viva, who was one of Andy Warhol's superstars, we'll hear from Alexandra O'Dare. Her new memoir describes her early life in the Chelsea Hotel, in a world of underground artists, living outside the boundaries of what most people would consider a, quote, normal childhood. Your mother was on the phone with Warhol comparing the pain of childbirth to his pain of getting shot. (laughs) Also, we'll hear from actor James Marsden. He plays a self-absorbed, satirical version of himself in the new show, Jury Duty. Marsden was also in the TV series Westworld and Dead to Me. His movies include Enchanted, 27 Dresses, and The Notebook. And Maureen Corrigan reviews the book Monsters, which asks the questions, what do we do with the art of monstrous men? That's all coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it. Like most of the underground stars who emerged from Andy Warhol's circle, Viva was an unconventional personality. Her oldest daughter, my guest Alexandra O'Dare, had a very unconventional upbringing. Her mother appeared in several Warhol films, including Lonesome Cowboys and The Loves of Undine. Alexandra's father, Michelle O'Dare, is a video artist and filmmaker. When Alexandra was a child, she had a part in an underground film as the daughter of a dominatrix. After her parents split up, when Alexandra was five, she went on the road with her mother and a cat they picked up along the way, traveling cross-country in a beat-up car. For several years, they lived in the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan, famous for having been home to Leonard Cohen, Dylan Thomas, Virgil Thompson, Bob Dylan, Sid and Nancy, among others. When Alexandra was 11, her mother gave birth to another daughter, Gabby Hoffman. Alexandra became a second mother to Gabby. By the time Alexandra was 11, she was carrying Gabby around in a snuggly. Alexandra became an actress, you might know her from the HBO series High Maintenance, from an episode in season two when she tries to break a dance marathon record, but her career has largely been devoted to teaching yoga and using Instagram to satirize how yoga has been commercialized. Her younger sister, Gabby Hoffman, is an actress who's co-starred in Transparent and Girls. Alexandra O'Dare has written a new memoir called Don't Call Me Home. Note to parents of young children, we're going to be having an adult conversation. Alexandra O'Dare, welcome to Fresh Air. What a really interesting book you've written. (laughs) Wow, thank you so much. I want to start with your birth. Um, Your father made a video of the whole thing, and this was like years before people were making videos of births. I mean, no one had video cameras there. Your father had a big... um, uh, uh, Sony Betamax? Yeah, it? I think yeah. they called it like a Sony Port-A-Pack, yeah. A Port-A-Pack, right. And yeah. those are like heavy things. Very few people had those. Those were expensive. Very true, yes. And, you know, this was a very graphic video. Like, you <laughs> saw the birth. Um, and then, as a child, you watched it. Like, how old were you the first time you saw the video of your own birth? You know, it's so funny that you ask that because just last night, my father sent me a couple of videos that I asked him for because I'm doing something in Los Angeles. And so I watched this thing. I mean, I've seen them a million times, but not in years and years. And I, it's me. I don't quite have perfect language, so I must be like three. And I'm asking, I want to see Emma being born because I called myself Emma 
which was my name in one of my mother's autofiction books, <laughs> which I, at the time I don't think they knew the word autofiction. Um, and so I'm sitting. It's a long video with the camera just trained on my face watching the video. And it is quite graphic. You know, there's a close-up of my head coming out and an incision. And I'm biting my nails, which I still do. And staring at it and you can see every expression sort of across my face as each moment in the birth video happens and it's almost a bit disturbing actually <laughs> but my, and my mother says when I say I want to see Emma being born my mother says okay you're really you know you're really driving me crazy with this Alex how many times a day do you want to see this and I say two times a day <laughs> you know most girls when they find out that Babies are born through a woman's vagina. Mm -hmm. Kind of freak out because it's like so hard to imagine the possibility of that unless there's some kind of like magic. Mm -hmm. And there you are, age three, actually watching yourself being born in the most graphic way. How did that affect you emotionally? And how to, what did it make you think about what childbirth meant, what it was like, and whether you wanted to be a mother yourself? Well, it's, I mean, it's so interesting because I, you know, I knew that I, at a very young age, wanted to have a home birth. And it's a great, um, you know, kind of study in how we become who we are, I think, this video and how our thoughts are formed. Because my mother in the background says, next time I'm having a home birth. I want to have another baby just so I can have a home birth. And it's interesting. And I wonder if I really internalized that you know, kind of monologue of hers about how horrible the birth was. And I am someone who's quite comfortable with my body and sort of, you know, try to share that with people in a way, you know, try to help other women and my you're, daughter. You're a yoga teacher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. But I'm, I'm particularly extra, you know, <laughs> like I'm known as a sort of, you know, I'll take off my clothes kind of anytime. <laughs> um, there's, there's plenty of uptight yoga teachers out there, you know, Terry. But um it really did affect me on a deep level. Did you hear your mother scream? Was there audio? Yes, there's audio. It's very intense audio. And she's really wailing. And you can see when, well, I can see when I'm watching the actual video of me watching it. So how it's pretty meta, I guess, because I was like in bed last night at 52 watching my three-year-old self watching my birth, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a bit odd. Um, and I do seem a little nervous watching it. So I do think there was an essence of, you know, that I had to self-soothe at a young age. The fact that I'm biting my nail. I've not really seen three-year-olds bite their nails voraciously, you know. So I think there was definitely a nervousness and a, a way I had to self-soothe myself with all of the input and sensory input I was getting at a very young age. And then, like everything, there was this other side that was a great thing that made me very comfortable and and open with things like babies coming out of vaginas, for example, you know. One more question about childbirth. Yeah, please. So your mother was on the phone with Warhol comparing the pain of childbirth to his pain of getting shot. <laughs> yeah. And, and she says, I think my birth was more painful than you getting shot. <laughs> and I think that's just kind of hilarious, them uh, comparing pain uh, yeah. like that. It's That's very Viva and very Warhol, really. You know, they shared this. They were both Catholic and had a lot in common. And a lot of that personality type, you know, 
I'm going to use the word martyrs, you know. Um, they were very into discussing the aches and pains. And my mother always has been, you know, starting as a young age, or at least from what I have observed. And so I think, yeah, I really love, I think that's so funny. And he just seems to take it, you know, off the cuff. I don't know, it's so hard to know what, what Warhol's ever thinking, you know, because he's so kind of deadpan. Is it true she was on the phone with him when he was shot? Yes, it is true. She was on the phone with him. Um, she heard him say, you know, oh, my God, or something like that. And he put the phone down. She was still there, and she heard the shots. Wow. And then she rushed. She was basically at the hospital as he was being brought to the hospital. You and your mother were on The Letterman Show mm -hmm. after you appeared in a Vim Vendors film together and you were on the show promoting it. And <laughs> tell us what happened at the end. Yeah, so my mother um, decided that if everybody sent her a dollar, you know, who was watching the show, she could we could make some money. We get some money. So she said, you know, I don't have any money. You know, no, none of the men that have, a, they abandoned me and I'm not supported. And I'm not sure if she said exactly that. I'm sort of, you know, paraphrasing. And she said, send anything you can. Wait, wait, wait. And she, and she, didn't she mention that Andy Warhol, like, never yes. gave her her due financially? Yes. yes. Yeah. She said, I've never, you know, I, I never made a cent from those Warhol movies, a single cent. So if you send me just one dollar at two twenty two West twenty third Street, New York, New York one zero zero one one, I still remember the address of the Chelsea, um, and Letterman like, I can't remember exactly what he did, but he tried to like end the show. And then we would get these envelopes sent to the Chelsea. You know, in the Chelsea Hotel, you have these um, cubby boxes, you know, for your mail behind the desk. Each room has a little cubby. And we would have these envelopes, you know, Viva, CEO, Chelsea Hotel, and there would be literally a dollar bill in the envelope. We're listening to Terry's interview with Alexandra O'Dare. Her new memoir, Don't Call Me Home, is about her unconventional upbringing. Her mother is Viva, one of the underground celebrities from Andy Warhol's circle. Her father, Michelle O'Dare, is a video artist and filmmaker. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Alexandra O'Dare. Her new memoir, Don't Call Me Home, describes her early life in the Chelsea Hotel, in a world of underground artists, living outside the boundaries of what most people would consider a normal childhood. You wanted a sister very badly, and when your mother became pregnant when you were about 10 or 11, um, with an actor who you both knew but who was, I think he was married to somebody else at the time. Um, uh, so your mother asked you, and you're like 10 or 11, she asked you if she should have an abortion. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big question to lay on a child and a big responsibility too because say you answered her pro or con <laughs> yeah. and she decided, even if it was independently decided to do the same thing that you suggested, if things went wrong one way or another, if she had regrets one way or another, you might have felt a responsibility for that. Yeah, you bring up a really good point in this kind of, you know, relationship that we had. I felt I had a great deal of control on some level whilst, you know, of course, in retrospect, you know, if you were going to go to the um, analyst couch one the thing is, there was no control. But yet I did believe I had this ability to, you know, steer the ship. And, um, you know, her saying, should I have an abortion, that didn't 
upset me at all in the sense that I wasn't shocked by the idea of abortion. I think I just took it, you know, when you live with someone who's in a sort of constant monologue, a lot of the stuff just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. So sometimes it can be as intense as talking about abortion to just, you know, like, where are my socks that becomes kind of the same tone <laughs> in your head. So I just knew, no, we're having this baby, you know, and I would say we. And I was absolutely certain I wanted a baby sister. It had to be a sister. And it was just outrageous to me, not because I thought abortion was bad or gross or anything, just outrageous to me that she wouldn't have this child that was meant to be, that we had both, you know, prayed for at Fatima in Portugal. Um, you know, so I really thought sh that Gabby was um, a kind of, you know, destiny, our destiny. You became like a second mother to Gabby taking her in a snuggly when you were 11, taking her to a sleepover <laughs> when yeah. you were a kid, and you were, the mother of your friend sent you and Gabby home <laughs> in a taxi because Gabby was just, like, crying all the time, <laughs> and no one could hush her. Um, I find that story so funny, you know, in retrospect. Yeah, but, uh, you know, did you want to be a part-time mother for her, or is that a responsibility you felt compelled to take on? I mean, I really feel I did. I was, like... You know, again, in retrospect, obviously, you see things in a slightly different light. But with Gabby, I tr I don't know why it was. Maybe I was super weirdo at 11 years old, but I was so into the idea. And I really felt this deep love for her and really wanted to be with her. I mean, you know, as she became a toddler and I was then coming into my teen years, that felt different. You know, I mean, I adored her, but I wanted some of my own time. So I felt more like a disgruntled mother by that point. But in those those first couple of years, I was I was all in. I want to ask you a question about your father. And um, you know, there's so much drama in your life growing up. <laughs> um, your your father snorted heroin. Mm -hmm. He's very functional, mm -hmm. and you spent a lot of time living with his, your father and his then wife, the artist Cindy Sherman. Mm -hmm. And like you knew he was doing it, you know, and you'd hear the papers rustling. I don't know. Mm -hmm. how much you knew about heroin at the time. But um, knowing that he was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing, no matter how much you knew about heroin, did you feel like you wanted to talk with him about it or that it was best to just pretend like nothing was happening? You know, I think I didn't exactly know what heroin was, but my mother would always refer to him as a junkie. And... So I I knew there was something going on and that it was drugs, I suppose. And it made me very uncomfortable when I knew he was doing it. But I don't think I had like an intellectual grasp of what it was. But I definitely felt very uncomfortable. It's hard to say which was more uncomfortable. My mother yelling about it a lot, you know, and asking me to call him and tell him I know or confront him or being in his loft in Tribeca, knowing he would sometimes do this thing, this mysterious thing. You know, I almost prefer to just dissociate for a couple of minutes and wait till the process was over 
and then come out because when we were together, he didn't seem high to me at all. He just – I actually really enjoyed his company. And so he would make dinner and we would – you know, he would make his videos and I would play in the neighborhood with my friends. He didn't seem weird to me and he wasn't, you know, abusive in any way or I never saw him nodding out or anything like that. He was very high-functioning or at least whatever he did when I was there appeared very high-functioning. But that said, I did not like it, no. Yeah. You lived in the Chelsea Hotel for several years with your mother. How old were you during your Chelsea years? So we I was almost born in the lobby, and then we were there when my mom and dad were still together for, I would say, a couple of years before we moved to Topanga Canyon. And then from like 2 to 10, it was a lot of that on the road that you mentioned and, you know, going to different places across the country and even, even different places in the world. My mother had this sister in Argentina and... I also visited – I went with my dad to Paris and France and saw his French family. So when I was about 9, 10, we secured an apartment in the Chelsea. We had just come back from Portugal doing that Vim Vendors movie. And we stayed there from then on until I left for college. What was it like spending some of your formative years in the famous Chelsea Hotel? And who was living there at the time whose names we might know? It was honestly a wonderful place to be an adolescent and a teenager because, one, there's a doorman. So, you know, if you go out partying at night, there's no fear of drunk driving and there's always somebody there. And it was a very tight community. I mean, of course, there's people, you know, transient people coming in and out. If let's say a, <laughs> I'm going to say a normal person might be horrified <laughs> at, the, at the crowd, you know, but uh, and there was like often cops and you know some strange riffraff, but nobody was ever threatening to me at all. And in fact, I loved the weirdos. And um, my mother's greatest friends lived there. So on one floor we would have Valley Myers, who this amazing Australian. She called herself a witch. She was an artist and she had tattooed her whole face with like aboriginal markings around her face. And her apartment was filled with Magdiliodoro coffee cans and colored beads. And my mother and I would love when my mother would leave me a little note on the door saying at Valley's and I would go down and just hang out listening to the women's voices chatting, which I think is like one of the reasons I love your voice, Terry. It's just like I love the sound of women's voices talking in the background while I'm falling asleep. Hmm. Um, Thanks. (laughs) um, And then Shirley Clark, who was an incredible video artist, filmmaker, and did an amazing docu jazz documentary. And she was, you know, a lover of the incredible Ornette Coleman, as was, I think, my mother, so the story goes. <laughs> and um, Shirley Clark was all black and white. She had a Felix the Cat fetish, and the entire apartment was black and white with a, like, shelf of Felix the Cat dolls, and even she herself was black and white. Like, she had a white streak and a black streak in her hair and wore only black and white clothes. So what was the downside of living in the Chelsea? As community-oriented and fun as it could be, there was also a sort of menacing side. And Stanley Bard, who was the owner at the time and the landlord and is is famous for being generous with artists, he would take art in exchange for rent and is often lauded as this great you know benefactor of artists, he would you know, call me into his office at the age as young as, you know, 10 years old and 
tell me I had to go get the rent from my mother or they, quote unquote, they, I never knew who they were, were going to kick us out. And I loathed those, you know, forced meetings in his office. It just made me feel very uncomfortable and I didn't want to deal with him. And my mother would be constantly fighting with him, big, huge scenes in the lobby, screaming scenes. And, you know, there was definitely the people you didn't want to deal with. Like if you imagine living in a commune kind of like an old 70s commune in the countryside, it was like a commune in this strange building. So I often had to find little, you know, mysterious and secret exit routes in and out of places to avoid certain people. Why did you need to avoid them? Sometimes it was probably an aspect of being overwhelmed at times at home with, as we spoke earlier about this, like, you know, monologuing a lot of sensory input. I just could not deal with questions. So sometimes, you know, there would be what, you know, we sometimes call like a lobby rat, someone who's always in the lobby, <laughs> never leaves the lobby. And they, if I was trying to rush, you know, they might say, Alex, Alex, come here. How are you doing? Did you, are you going on that audition? I haven't, where's your mother? And I just like would feel this almost rage sometimes because I just didn't want to talk, you know? So I, I would sneak through the El Quixote restaurant, which used to have a door by what I call the gold elevator. And you could go out of the building through the El Quixote, but the El Quixote manager did not like that. So he would also yell at me if he saw me. <laughs> so it was a bit of a maze I had to negotiate depending on the mood of the day. Yeah. You have two children. Yes. In their teens? One is 11, my boy Miko. And my daughter Louie is 19 and she's at Bard College where Nick and I went, my husband and I went. Oh. So uh, when you became a mother, did you make certain vows of what you would do similar to and different from how you were raised by Viva? Yes and no. On some ways, I wanted to do what she did. Like I was, I always admired, you know, nursing on demand, if you're aware of that, like idea, like the child can nurse whenever they want to nurse. And I guess, you know, what the term would be is attachment parenting. And so, I definitely thought that was the way to go, although now, you know, at this point, I'm not sure if that was the right way <laughs> when in retrospect. But uh, I really wanted consistency. I wanted a sense of safety, of boundaries. Now, you know, you'd have to ask Louie. She might not necessarily feel Nick and I provided that for her, but I think we did, you know, the best we could. But, you know, I think that is why probably we're more domestic. We're more boring, really, than my own parents were, you know. <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, I wanted them to have their own sense of self and my, my a sense of privacy with my own private life. Now, again, if you interviewed my kids, they might not say that's how it went down. Yeah, well, I, I know from your book that you went through family therapy mm -hmm. with, um, well, I don't know who was in it, but I know your daughter was. Mm -hmm. And and you write that um, listening to what your daughter had to say about you was a form of torture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that she described how sometimes she feels when she's at home filled with anxiety, unable to relax, no privacy, that she's subjugated mm. by her parents' unpredictable moods. Um, I, I can imagine how that would feel like. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Was it helpful to since you wrote about it? I'm going to ask. Was it helpful to hear that? Yeah, I I do think so. I mean, it was shocking. Um, I think, and I, you know, part of me wanted to be like, oh my gosh, do you know no privacy? You need to see how I grew up. You know, and I hadn't. You know, she hadn't read my book at that point. 
Um, so it was almost like, you have no idea, kid. But I knew that that was obviously the worst thing one could ever say, you know, in a family therapy session or to your child. That's just, it doesn't mean anything. You know, it doesn't matter how you grow up. It's how they're experiencing it. So I luckily avoided saying that. But I was, yeah, I was a bit devastated, actually, to be honest, to hear that. Um, I think now that Louie has read my book, she's a huge, she's the like greatest supporter and the most wonderful woman, and she loves it and finds it hysterically funny. And I gave her a copy to make sure she didn't have a problem with any of you know the part she was in. She jokes that I call her a slut on the first page. Um, <laughs> but um, so I think that's been therapeutic on some level, you know, for us. And you know, we're pretty we're pretty honest with each other as a family most of the time. So. You know, I think what she's, you know, what everything she said in that therapy session, I agree with, you know, and there's you can't go back. So you, I just you just have to acknowledge the faults as best you can to your children and um, try to do better onward, you know. So, Alex, it's been great to talk with you. I'm so glad we did this. Thank you so much. I adore you. And I'm so appreciative. Alex O'Dare's new book is called Don't Call Me Home. Should we continue to celebrate works of art, books, paintings, films, made by human beings who've done terrible things? If you don't have a ready-made answer to that question, our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a book to recommend. It's called Monsters. Here's her review. Last month, I gave a talk at a conference in honor of the late writer Norman Mailer. When I mentioned this conference in class to my Georgetown students, a couple of them blurted out, but he stabbed his wife. I could feel the mood in that classroom shifting. The students seemed puzzled, disappointed even. What was I doing speaking at a conference in honor of a man capable of such an act? The situation was reversed at the conference itself. When I confessed in my talk that, much as I revere Mailer's nonfiction writing, I was just as glad never to have met him. Some audience members were taken aback, offended on Mailer's behalf. If Mailer's writing had always been as bad as his sporadic behavior, there would be no problem. But as Claire Dieterer points out in her superb new book, Monsters, the problem arises when great art is made by men who've done bad things— Men like Picasso, Hemingway, Roman Polanski, Miles Davis, Woody Allen, and yes, Mailer. Do we put blinders on and just focus on the work? Do geniuses, as Dieterer asks, get a hall pass for their behavior? Or do we cancel the art of men and some women who've done monstrous things? I hope that Dieterer herself doesn't turn out to be a monster because I flat out admire her book and want to share it with my students. As a thinker, Dieterer is smart, informed, nuanced, and very funny. She started out as a film critic and credits Pauline Kael as a model for grounding her judgments in her own subjectivity, her own emotions. The subtitle of Monsters is A Fan's Dilemma, the dilemma being still loving, say, the music of Wagner or Michael Jackson, still being caught up in movies like Chinatown or maybe even Manhattan. In short, 
Dieter wants to dive deep into the murk of being unwilling to give up the work of art you love, and yet also being unwilling to look away from the stain of the monster who created it. The Me Too movement propels this exploration, but so too does our own social media biography-saturated moment. When I was young, Dieterer says, it was hard to find information about artists whose work I loved. Record albums and books appeared before us as if they had arrived after hurtling through space's black reaches, unmoored from all context. These days, however, we turn on Seinfeld, and whether we want to or not, we think of Michael Richards' racist rant. Biography used to be something you sought out. Now it falls on your head all day long. Maybe you can hear in those quotes how alive Dieterer's own critical language is. She also frequently flings open the door of the stuffy seminar room, so to speak, to take her readers along on field trips. There's a swank dinner in New York with an intimidating man of letters, who, she says, likes to play the part, ironically but not, low-key misogyny and brown alcohol in a tumbler. When she expresses distaste for Woody Allen's Manhattan normalizing a middle-aged man in a relationship with a 17-year-old, he tells her to get over it. You really need to judge it on aesthetics. Dieterer confesses to finding herself put off balance in that conversation, doubting herself. We also marched through a Picasso show at the Vancouver Art Museum in the company of Dieterer and her children. At the time, she says, they possessed the fierce moral sense to be found in teenagers and maniacs and were starting to look a bit nettled at the exhibit's disclosures of Picasso's abusive treatment of the women in his life. So where does all this walking and talking and thinking and reacting get us on the issues of monsters and their art? Still in the murk, perhaps, but maybe buoyed up a bit by a sharp question Dieterer tosses out in the middle of her book. What if, Dieterer asks, criticism involves trusting our feelings, not just about the crime which we deplore, but about the work we love. To do that, we'll have to think and feel with much greater urgency and yet more care than we're currently doing. As Dieterer suggests, and Pauline Kael famously did, we should go ahead and lose it at the movies and then think hard about what we've lost. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of English at Georgetown University. She reviewed Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer. Coming up, actor James Marsden. He plays a self-absorbed, satirical version of himself in the news show Jury Duty. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. James Marsden has had a long career in Hollywood, playing the romantic interest in many comedies and dramas, even if he doesn't always end up with the girl. But recently he's taken on some other kind of roles. In the HBO series Westworld, he was Teddy, one of the android cowboys in the Western-themed adventure park that goes wrong. And he did double duty in the Netflix show Dead to Me, playing semi-identical brothers. 
The new show, Jury Duty, available on Amazon Freebie, has its roots in the old TV show Candid Camera, where surprising and funny things happened to unwitting bystanders, and hidden cameras captured their reactions. In Jury Duty, a regular guy named Ronald Gladden has agreed to participate in a documentary about the experience of being a juror. He goes to the L.A. courtroom, is picked as the jury foreperson, and follows along the court proceedings. There's a small film crew following him and the other jurors around. What Ronald doesn't know is that the whole thing is fake. The entire courthouse has been fitted with hidden cameras, and everyone there except him is an actor. The other jurors, the judge, the lawyers, the plaintiff, the bailiff, everybody. And a lot of them are acting really weird and doing funny things. It's all highly improvised. The camera captures Ronald trying to navigate these strange people and circumstances, and he does so amazingly well, with kindness and grace, even when he finds out he's going to be sequestered for two weeks with his fellow jurors at a hotel. Jury duty might have been a cruel show, but it's not. Ronald is not the butt of an elaborate joke. He's actually the hero of the show. The only person he recognizes among the other jurors is the actor James Marsden, who's also been summoned for jury duty. This James Marsden is a self-absorbed and egotistical, satirical version of the Hollywood star played by James Marsden, our guest today. Marsden has been in a lot of movies and TV shows over his career, including Enchanted, 27 Dresses, four X-Men movies, two Sonic the Hedgehog movies, The Notebook, and 30 Rock. But before we get to that, let's hear a clip from the new show, Jury Duty. Here, the potential jurors are sitting in the court waiting room, and Ronald realizes that the man sitting next to him is James Marsden. Dude, that's why I know you're from. You're an X-Men. Oh. I've <laughs> been thinking that this entire time. I didn't ask your name, forgive me. Ronald. Ronald. Yeah, yeah James. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I was trying to pinpoint it, because I was like, I've seen you somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but I've been in like so much stuff it's like x-men and hairspray and enchanted and westworld and stuff like that but notebook and... oh shit you're in westworld <laughs> yeah yeah i know him from the notebook he's in the notebook <laughs> no what is he in the notebook the other guy he's the other guy the guy she really should have got together with. oh my god i haven't seen that movie in so long i didn't even i didn't realize <laughs> I was looking at his socks over here. It looked like it said Sonic. And I'm in that movie Sonic. And I was like, does he have Sonic socks on? Oh, shit, you're in the movie Sonic? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the one with the new one with Jim Carrey. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that was not a good movie. <laughs> That's a scene from Jury Duty with Ronald Gladden and my guest, James Marsden. James Marsden, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Sam. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, so I just want to ask you first, when you heard about what the show was going to be about, did you have any reservations about doing it? Um, I only had reservations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I did, of course. It was uh, a very ambitious conceit. Um, I was approached by my friend David Bernad, who is a producer of The White Lotus. We've done a couple of projects together before. And... Um, he asked if uh, I'd be interested in getting on a Zoom with Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stepnitsky at The Office, who I was a, a huge fan of that show. Um, and he gave me sort of a, a, a basic one-liner idea of the concept of the show, which is basically we're taking uh, The Truman Show and we're dropping it in the middle of uh, jury duty. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, let's expound on that. Let's <laughs> What's my part? What am I doing? And I got excited about the sort of improvisational element of the show and the sort of live theater 
part of the whole thing. I was always looking for an opportunity to get in a room and play with uh, improvisational actors. So that was you exciting. Haven't, you me. haven't done that much of that, right, in the past? No, I haven't. Not tr- true improvisational shows that are that's woven into the DNA of the show by nature. But something like this was so unique, so different and original. And I was enthusiastic about b- being a part of something like this, but also apprehensive because I didn't know <laughs> if it was going to work. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I had many reservations. And the biggest one was the wild card of this one human being who's being dropped into this situation that is all fake and manufactured and what that's going to be like and who, what's he going to be like? And is this even something that is, you know, ethically right to do <laughs> sort right. Of, you know, play with someone's human experience over the course of three weeks of their life? Um, but I made it clear that it was important to me that I didn't want to be a part of a prank show. You right. know, I was not that I was not interested in being cruel or mean spirited at all. And they said, no, we're not interested in doing that either. What we're doing is we're creating a hero's journey for somebody. And what we're surrounding him with are these, this cast of bizarre, eccentric weirdos, and hopefully carving out a path for him to become the leader at the end and have his 12 Angry Men moment where he um, inspires us all and unites us. And, um, and then we pull the curtain back and and show celebrate him as a human being and hopefully show him what he was all about yeah uh, show him what it was all about and hopefully he takes that in, in stride and no but you know who knows how he's going to react um so the sort of unknown was appealing to me but it was also terrifying so when you were thinking about making this satirical version of yourself did you think about things about yourself that you don't really like very much and amplify them? Or did you come up with like a completely different character? Like what did you base that person on? Uh, You know, to me, it was just the idea of lampooning the cliche, you know, entitled, self-absorbed, egocentric Hollywood actor was really exciting to me. And I could, you know, I, I could do it as myself. And hopefully by the end of it, everyone would know that I'm, satirizing that character and right. and it's not really me. <laughs> you know, I do this kind of bit on set sometimes when we're sitting around waiting for the cameras to be set up. I'm not talking about jury duty. I'm talking about every other movie or TV show I've ever a part of. And uh-huh. I just think it's it's a funny little bit to like pretend like you're the actor who is trying to be affable and like self-deprecating, but really what comes through is the the, <laughs> the narcissism <laughs> and the, and the, the uh, conceited nature of, you know, it's that whole thing of like, I'd, you know, I would do a, a little bit on set and be like, yeah, I don't think people really truly understand how difficult it is to be an actor. I know there are really tough and dangerous vocations out there, but... I don't think people really know how hard it is. I'm sorry, the coffee is a little yeah. lukewarm. These ice cubes are too cold. Right. <laughs> right. And so, I don't know. I just thought the idea of sending up that that sort of trope and, and playing with it, and I'm, I'm doing it in my own shoes, um, was an exciting, funny thing for me to explore. And, uh, <laughs> and there's something about playing someone who thinks that the world worships them when they actually don't <laughs> at all <laughs> and watching that person 
you know, get humiliated, fall on their face, get embarrassed by the lack of enthusiasm in the room. And I mean, this James Marsden is always trying to get the conversation steered back to him because right. that's <laughs> that's the only conversation he knows and it's the only conversation he's interested in. Right. I I really enjoyed watching the show, but I have to say after watching the show, I've been feeling really paranoid about when I'm like out in public and something weird happens. Like I look around like, you know, am I on film? Is someone recording me? Like it's, yeah. it gave me a, a, especially like the first day afterwards, I had a really weird sensation about it. Yeah, I think that's a normal reaction. Um, I remember when I first got involved, calling all my friends who are in the improv world. I remember calling Ben Schwartz. And I was like, well, here's the conceit of this show. And it's really ambitious. And, and um, what am I doing? I mean, like, am I, you know, is this a good thing to do? <laughs> his first words out of his mouth were, make sure they're not punking you. <laughs> right. And I remember thinking that the first week. It was like, this, is this an elaborate am I the butt of the joke of the whole thing? Yeah. Right. Everyone was questioning their, their, not to get Westworld, but their reality <laughs> right, right. as we, as we progressed through the whole thing. Cause it just could have been anything. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I can imagine even the viewers going home afterwards thinking, wow, what if that was me? How would I handle that? I mean, yeah. I know me, I can't even take a surprise birthday party. <laughs> right. So again, it's like, who knows how this is going to affect him? And, um, yeah, I think that's a pretty uh, natural response to be questioning if people are following you around with cameras, especially nowadays when... There's cameras when everywhere. All, like, everyone's got a camera there cameras, in There's cameras everywhere, and there's, there's sort of a new blending, a fusion that's going on of, like, mm -hmm. scripted stuff mixed with reality. Right. You know, the audience is kind of wanting to see a little bit more of that, right? I mean, we're obsessed with these, like, court cases with Gwyneth Paltrow and right. Johnny Depp, and it's like, that's our entertainment now. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I feel like we're sort of steering the ship in that direction uh, in our industry a bit. And maybe we're going to see a lot more of this sort of hidden camera stuff. Well, let's get to another um, really dramatic scene from one of your other movies. This is from the movie Enchanted. <laughs> Switching gears. <laughs> yeah. This is a Disney movie that spoofs the idea of um, Disney princesses and Prince Charming, like tropes. And uh, you play Prince Edward. You and Giselle, who is played by Amy Adams, actually like live in an animated world, a very Disney world. And uh, the minute you meet, you sing a duet together and fall immediately in love and you're planning to get married. However, your stepmother doesn't want you to marry uh, Giselle, so she pushes her down a magic well, and she lands up in the non-animated, gritty world of New York City. I mean, gritty in a Disney sort of way. But um, but so she meets Patrick Dempsey and starts having feelings for him, and she starts to like learn to appreciate her new world. You've also jumped into the well to try to go find her, and here you finally have, um, and this is at Patrick Dempsey's apartment. He has a daughter, and this is when you see her for the first time. Giselle! Edward! Uh. <laughs> could you, I'm sorry, but could you just be, could you, could you just be careful? Please. You. What? You're the one who's been holding my Giselle captive. Just uh, stay calm. No! Have you any last words before I dispatch you? You have got to be kidding me. Strange words. No! 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 These are my friends. Oh. This is Morgan and Robert. This is Edward. 
I've been dreaming of a true love's kiss. He sings too. And a miss I have begun to miss. Pure and sweet waiting to complete my love song. Yes, somewhere there's a maid I've never met who was made. Who was made to finish? What's wrong? You're not singing. Oh, I'm not. Well, I'm sorry. I was thinking. Thinking? Before we leave, there's one thing I would love to do. Oh, well, name it, my love, and it is done. I want to go on a date. A date? What's a date? <laughs> That's my guest, James Marsden, in the movie. Enchanted. It's so interesting just listening to the audio. <laughs> yeah, it's great audio. Um, so you're doing like a sort of a Prince Charming voice there. Like, how? what are you doing? Uh, I mean, we went back and looked at all the old Snow Whites and, and uh, you know, the classic Disney uh, princes and Sleeping Beauty and... and they all had this sort of voice, you know, that was like, uh, <laughs> they, like they loved the sound of their own voice. Yeah. And it's they like, loved I'm the an idea. actor or something. Yes. I, yes. It was very, you know, back in the day in the 40s or whatever, they were just taught to do you know, speech. They had speech lessons and whatever. And um, with the singing, I mean, I know that was an acapella bit, but when we actually recorded that song, I had uh, vocal lessons from a coach who was. Um, taught operetta style mm, singing mm-hmm. um it was sort of mario lanza uh <laughs> you know it wasn't um because back in the the older disney movies that's the kind of singing it was it was operetta it wasn't uh it wasn't your modern disney style uh kind of more pop singing so it was um it was a style of music or style of singing that i wasn't that familiar with and and uh had to uh <laughs> get up to speed but yes it was um you know, I thought Edward was someone who always every every uh, every statement is as simple or complex as it would be. Not that he was ever saying anything much complex, I mean, too complex, but uh, had to be a proclamation, right? Everything. I'll have a bagel, <laughs> you know, and it had to have an exclamation point at the end. Of it. Um, and I just think there was such a f- fun to be had to just be this unabashed. Um, romantic, romantic uh, prince who just is in in love with being in love. Mm. He's in love with the idea of Giselle, and he's love and is in love with his his the sound of his own voice, and and just goes through moves through life with just um, you know uh, an optimism that's unmatched. <laughs> like nothing can you know you can't imagine him ever getting cynical about anything. Um, and wow, what a, you know, ignorance is bliss kind of way to live. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun to play because obviously I'm wearing the big giant puffy sleeves and <laughs> yeah, swinging the sword right. and, and the hair is flopping <laughs> around and, you know, it just, uh, it was a blast. It really was so much fun. You know, I just wondering, um, I think it's objectively clear that you're a very attractive person. And I was wondering if you just like, in your life, did you ever have a realization of that? Like, and, and that that would mean that there would be sort of attention towards you, like maybe wanted attention or sometimes unwanted attention. Yeah, I guess there be, there was a realization at some point. It's so funny, though, because I was 
not that guy growing up. I mm-hmm. really was not. I was goofy. I was, you know, I was the silly actor guy doing doing bits. I didn't know how to get a good haircut. I, you know, I didn't. I didn't care what I was wearing. I just, you know, would have my shirt on inside out and mismatching socks and it just, you know, in Oklahoma is like the girls want the like jock who's the quarterback of the football team and six foot two corn fed boy. And I was like this 145 pound shrimp who just was like, I can do a good Mike Myers, you know, <laughs> it's not the sexiest thing in the world. I just never looked at myself that way mm-hmm. um, until I turned about like 17 and it sort of started coming into myself and, and I started hearing it back from other people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I remember this girlfriend of mine, Leslie, in high school and she was like my my pal like we were buddies and then when i got to senior year of high school she was like what happened to you and i'm like what do you mean she's <laughs> like you're actually kind of hot now <laughs> so it's like wait what what does that even mean <laughs> right um but i did realize at some point that you know if you accept that as you know something that's part of your nature and and it can be an absolute asset in this business mm-hmm. then embrace it James Marsden, it's been really great having you on. Thanks so much for being on Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. James Marsden plays a self-absorbed, satirical version of himself in the new Amazon freebie show, Jury Duty. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Sam Brigger. 